Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. It was like magical. I was 22 when I did it, and I found my calling. I found my purpose. I always say it found me. I mean, it, it was like, I feel that it was meant to be. Every human being is a diamond. And that diamond through life gets covered up. The glow and the, the shine gets dulled over time. And so what I do is I bring out the diamond. That's what I do. And so all the pain and all the disconnection I went through growing up, it's like I found something that I was able to Used to turn all that energy, all that pain into purpose. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Chris Lee. You can find him on Facebook at Chris Lee Motivational Trainer. I wanted to have Chris on the show because he's one of these no bullshit guys that just gets to the root of a lot of struggles that people have and can really help people break through to the next level of their life. So who is Chris Lee? Chris has spent the last 27 years leading powerful leadership seminars around the world. He's a pioneer in the field of emotional intelligence. He's trained and developed people at the top of their game from Olympic athletes to Fortune 500 business leaders and celebrities. He also serves as a collaborator on TV and radio shows for Univision and the Fox Network. I first met Chris at the Lewis House Summit of Greatness event and he blew my doors off. His work on emotional intelligence is incredible and I wanted to bring him on the show to have him teach it to you. In this conversation, we talk about everything from what it was like for him being transplanted from New York to Puerto Rico at five years old and having to grow up as a Jewish kid in a Catholic world. A lot of lessons in that story. We also talked about how identifying your racket is the gateway to your emotional freedom. And we talked about what play hard looks like for him. And this dude knows how to play. He's a dancer too. He's going to tell you all about his dancing. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Chris and let us know what you thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Chris Lee. Chris, I want to officially welcome you to the show. I am super excited to have you on. And, and here's why. People who have trained with you have separated their lives into two categories, before they've trained with you and after they've trained with you. And I am so excited to dig in today to find out what all the rage that is Chris Lee is all about. So thanks for making the time. Absolutely. I've, I've uh, looked forward to this. We have a mutual friend, Drew Cannoli, and I'm sure that if we start digging, we have many mutual friends. I think it, between you and me, it's like half of a degree of separation. And uh, <laughs> Drew has said beautiful things about you and uh, really asked me to be part of this podcast, and uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited too. So I thought a good jumping off point for us would be to start with a post that you wrote. You said, you all deserve to have the life you've always dreamed of. Settling equals death. Was there a time in your life that you found yourself settling and how did you get out of it? 
Yeah, I was in a relationship. I was like, you know, like a lot of us in a relationship where I saw more in the person than was actually being delivered. And so I had faith and uh, a vision for the relationship that didn't match reality. And so I'm very stubborn. And when I get committed to something, you know, I don't, I don't quit easily. But I found myself that I was actually settling instead of really being committed to my own vision and realizing that, you know, insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and over, expecting a different result. It got to a point where the relationship became insanity. And I found the courage to step forward into a new direction and redirect my energy. And so, yeah, that was the time I was settling in my life. I was stuck because the reward or the false reward of being in a stuck or a stagnant relationship was outweighing my vision. And the reward was having a comp- you know, having somebody with me, great sex, great com- companionship, friendship, et cetera, et cetera. But that was a false reward because in essence, it wasn't that. Right. The price tag was I was miserable. Yeah, right. Well, you've turned things you've turned things around quite a bit, um, and we're going to dig into that. But I'd like to start at the beginning. You were uh, you were born in New York, as I was. I was I'm from Queens, and then you moved to San Juan when you were just about a year old, and I think you stayed there for about five years. Can you tell us the story of what it was like growing up in San Juan as a New York Jewish kid and surrounded by a completely different religion? Well, not only was I, you know, uh, a different religion, I was a different ethnicity. And back then, Americans weren't so welcome in Puerto Rico. You know, there was a there was a big uh, sentiment of independence and there was even Spanish terrorists, Puerto Rican terrorists. There were there was a very negative view on Americans. I mean, I remember growing up in Old San Juan, and in front of my house there would be a big graffiti Yankee go home, and I knew who it was redirected to is to my family. And so, being American in a Latino country, being of a different religion in a Catholic country. And plus, I was really skinny. I was small. I was a tiny, you know, little boy. So it set the stage for total, you know, sharks and bullies. So I grew up feeling that I didn't belong, feeling unloved and feeling unworthy. Couple that with my dad abandoning us and actually leaving us there. So we stayed, I, I stayed till I was 18. I didn't stay there for a few years. I stayed there and I grew up in Puerto Rico. But when I was, you know, from one to six, that was the stage. And at six, my dad leaves. And then my mom's working all the time. And so it was a rough beginning for me. You were there until you were 18. Yeah, I went. And then at 18, I went to elementary school and high school in Puerto Rico. And then went to college in Boston. Oh, wow. Okay. I got that wrong. I didn't realize that. Okay. So you were the youngest of five. And you said your dad left uh, when you were six. In what ways, if you can remember being that young, in what ways did that impact you when he left? Well, he was my hero. I mean, he was he was the the one you know the one source of joy in my life. I was his son. He was my dad. He was the person that I most admired. He played the good cop role. So my mom, who was the disciplinarian, 
the one that you know basically blocked all of my fun and all of my childhood ways. My mom was like the enemy growing up, but my dad was the one that he would come home and I'd play with him. He was the one that was always, you know, I saw him as a very positive figure. Turns out that it was the other way around, but I didn't know that was when I was little. So when he leaves, and plus our family was, we don't talk about unpleasant things. So simply, we never had a conversation about him leaving, which is a big mistake. A lot of parents think they're sparing their kids. They're actually damaging their kids. And so we never talked about why he left. He just simply disappeared, never came back. So that really created in me major walls. I, I said it was the, the day my childhood died is the day that he left. And I became angry and I became a rebel and I became, you know, just me against the world. And you haven't seen him since you were six? No, not only have I not seen him since I was six, a few months ago, I, I found out through, a, through Facebook, actually, I discovered a half little brother and, t- and two other half siblings uh, that I knew about the, other t- the older two half siblings. I knew about them, but I didn't know about the little brother. And so we all connected. And it turns out, I found out a few months ago that he died in 1994. So he died many years ago. I never got to meet him again. And of course, now he's gone. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. What did you think you were going to be when you were in high school? I thought I was going to be probably a lawyer, somebody that was, you know, I was, I was thinking about going into either law school or study business. I never imagined myself being a transformational trainer and a life coach. It wasn't even an option. You know, the options that that wasn't what was in front of me. It wasn't what my mom was you know, really pushing me to be. And I'm sure at that time, life coaching was not uh, all the rage that it is today. No, no, they didn't exist. You know, usually the, the source of inspiration was in psychiatry, psychology, or therapist, religion. But there was really not, there was no, very few people into the emotional intelligence, consciousness, or mindfulness. Out of the hundreds of thousands of things that you could have done with your life, why did you decide to be a trainer and a coach? I didn't really decide it, to be honest with you. It chose me. It was, it, it was, it was really a, a wake up that I had. And you know, I, when I, once I went into college, I shifted into communications and psychology through communicate, studying communication, speech communications and psychology, I had the opportunity to participate in different workshops. And when I went into an emotional intelligence workshop, which back then was very, it was very different. It was, it's called Lifespring. And back then it was very controversial because there was negative things said about it, positive things said about it. And the person that inspired me to go was actually a a college counselor who actually did it and she recommended it to me and then one of my best friends did it and so between the two of them I finally decided to go it was in that process that I decided wait a minute this is what I want to do I want to impact people and empower people to empower themselves I found that psychology and therapy was really more about the issue and, and stabilizing 
And the workshops that I attended was more about transformation and that we have the power to create and reinvent ourselves. And so all the pain and all the sadness and all of the disconnection I went through growing up, it's like I found something that I was able to use to turn all that energy, all that pain into purpose. And so it's through the workshops that I started developing myself and not only transforming my life, but empowering the people in my life to, to also transform their lives. So I was able to empower a lot of people around me to participate. And it was incredible, not only to see what happened for me, but what happened for my family, my friends, my you know, coworkers at the time. I was clear that I would be a part of this for the rest of my life. So the workshops caught you at just the right time. It was, it was like magical. I was 22 when I, when I did it. And I found my calling. I found my purpose. I always say it found me. I mean, it, it was like, I feel that it was meant to be. And here's how I know. It was like, I, never, I could never envision myself doing anything other than serving people. Do you still feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, every day it gets stronger. Every day I'm more inspired. Every day I'm more passionate about what I do. What a beautiful gift. Yeah. And the feedback I get, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, like what you said, I, I listen to you say that people say their lives are before and after being with me and I hear it and, and there's the, the witness that watches it and, and listens to it. And it's like, wow, really? And then there's me who knows that that happens. And it's just, it's just amazing. And every day I get feedback like that. You know, I, I, I just came from a wedding in a Dominican Republic that would not have happened had I not been part of it. I participate in people's lives and I, every day in social media, you know, people's books become number one. Their podcast goes to 2 million. They're getting married. They're opening up businesses. They're being promoted to president. They're getting divorced, you know, leaving toxic relationships. But I don't, I don't think it's so much me that does that. I think it's more that people are extraordinary. People have the power to create the life that they want given the right set of conditions and support and coaching and empowerment. And that's what I provide. I provide you the environment for you to self-discover, you know, look within and access all the gifts that you were born with. Because my premise is that every human being is a diamond. And that diamond through life, like me, gets covered up. The glow and the, the, the shine gets dulled over time. And so what I do is I bring out the diamond. That's what I do. I want to get into um, your work a bit, but I, I want to make sure that, that I fully understand it. What is the difference between next level, landmark, and Tony Robbins training? Next level is more of a spiritual journey, and it's a also a practical tools that people take with them and use to create a transformation. So next level is an environment where you have the opportunity to uncover and redesign your limiting beliefs. So through a series of experiential workshops, And the experiential workshops go deep and give people the opportunity to really look at 
where your limiting beliefs come from and identify those limiting beliefs and barriers so that you can break through them and reinvent yourself. So that's next level. Tony Robbins is more on the practical tool side. So there's not so much breakthrough, but there's a lot of powerful tools for effective action. And Landmark is more of a philosophical, distinction-oriented program. And it's a series of lectures. There's not so much that they're not there are not so many experiential exercises. And all of them are valuable, by the way. So I'm not saying one thing is better than the other, but Landmark would be more of a a class on transformation. And next level is an experience in transformation. Tony Robbins would be more like a empowerment rally, you know, where you go and you just get pumped up. But you also are left with tools that, you know, that are practical. Got it. That is a super clear uh, explanation. Thank you. Let's um, let's dig into a couple of areas that I know that you're just really, really good at, and I think that we can provide some actionable information for people. So um, I'd like to talk about resistance. Let's first define what resistance is. How would you define resistance? Resistance is fear of known and or unknown situations or scenarios or realistic or unrealistic situations or scenarios. You see, we we go through life with a GPS system and that GPS system has us navigate through situations, through relationships, through changes, through you know, our different areas of our lives, through our finances, our businesses, that GPS is our beliefs. And the thing about a belief is when you have a belief, that becomes your reality. And so if your belief is limiting, then that limiting belief becomes your reality. And all limiting beliefs come from fear. And limiting beliefs cause resistance. Fear causes resistance. If I believe you're going to hurt me, I'm going to resist you. If I believe that I'm, I'm going to fail at something, I'm going to resist it. And so fear is what generates the limiting belief. The limiting belief generates the resistance. And so that's what resistance is. And it's, it's something that I created in my mind. Or it could be something based on a past experience, a situation that's happened to me in the past, So I was in a relationship, it didn't work out, so I believe that all relationships are going to fail. Got it. What are some things that you commonly see people resisting? People are so committed to being in control, and so when something requires change, then that change puts people out of their comfort zone. And so anything that gets me out of my comfort zone, not only do I resist, I get pissed about it. You know, some people get pretty violent about getting out of their comfort zone. Like they, they hang on for dear life because for some people it's the death zone. You know, it's kind of like bungee jumping with, with an invisible cord. They're, they're afraid and they're afraid because of the outcome that they've made up in their head. So change is one of the biggest things that people resist. The second thing I would say is love. And it's funny because it's what we, what we most want, 
but I believe it's also what we most resist. And the reason that we fear love is because we fear abandonment, we fear being hurt, we fear being rejected. That's why there's no accidents that public speaking is America's number one fear. But the issue isn't speaking in public. The issue is, I'm going to be abandoned, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm not going to look good. I'm not going to be loved. And so in essence, we all want to be loved. We want to love and be loved. And so anything that threatens that, then the resistance comes up. What's the opposite of resistance? Surrender. Mm. So how do we surrender out of resistance and into success? What a beautiful question. Thank you. Trust the process. Transform fear into faith. When you trust the process, you're trusting that the outcome is going to be beautiful. When I transform fear into faith, I mean, I have, I have that like a mantra in my, in my life, and I invite everyone listening to have that as a mantra. Transform fear into faith. Fear is the expectation that something's going to turn out in a negative way. Faith is the knowing that it will all turn out in a positive way. It will all turn out beautiful. One of my favorite quotes is by Ariana Huffington. And when Oprah Winfrey asked Ariana what was one of the keys to her success, Ariana Huffington said, oh, I act like life is rigged in my favor. (laughs) And when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, life is rigged in my favor. And so that that's one of the ways to transform resistance. It's like go through life like it's in your favor, no matter what it is. You got a cancer diagnosis. Life is rigged in your favor. Your husband dumped you or is cheating on you. Life is rigged in your favor. You're having financial challenges. You're having relationship challenges. You're having health challenges. Whatever it is, the attitude of life is rigged in my favor has me transform that fear of a negative outcome or a negative result into faith. Knowing that what's happening is temporary, what's happening will lead to something great, what's happening will lead to something bigger. And so it's really about having that viewpoint on life. And I believe in the law of attraction, what you believe you attract. And so if you believe that life is rigged against you and life sucks and I got a bad deal and how could this happen to me, et cetera, et cetera, you'll attract more of that. And if you stand in, you know what? Life is beautiful. Life is a gift. Everything is a blessing. Then you'll track that as well. Love that. I think there's a, uh, there's a Rumi quote, one of the philosophers, Rumi. Uh, we'll get it into the sh- show notes. But basically, um, he talks about just that, how the universe conspires in your favor. I love that. You mentioned uh, earlier the words emotional intelligence. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, emotional intelligence is your ability to know your own strengths, your own weaknesses, your ability to receive feedback, your ability to not only understand your emotions, but learn how to channel your emotions, learn how to be bigger than your reactions, being proactive versus reactive. So choosing joy, choosing love, even when you're upset or even when the world is throwing darts at you or shooting bullets at you. It's having the emotional power to choose to see the good in people, to see the positive in the situation. Emotional intelligence 
is what Viktor Frankl exercised while he was in a concentration camp where he chose joy and he chose love and he chose to see good in humanity even though he was going through one of the most horrific situations of humanity. And, you know, he found the key to his power in a concentration camp, and that was the ability to choose. He's like, man is what creates meaning and is who creates meaning. There's really no inherent significance to anything. We are the ones who attach meaning. And so emotional intelligence is being rigorous on how you perceive and interpret what's happening around you. So it's learning how to navigate through your own sea of crazy and messy and, you know, sporadic and up and down emotions, how to maintain stability with your joy, being proactive, choosing positive thoughts, choosing the high road and the high ground. But it's also understanding and connecting to people and learning where people are and how to empower people, how to connect with all kinds of people, how to connect to people that are just like you, people that are different, people that you are attracted to, people that you're not attracted to. And it comes down to listening. Connection is listening. And so somebody who's emotionally intelligent is someone who's an, a master at listening because they're able to connect not just what pe- to what people say, but where they're saying it from. So along the same lines as what you just described, I've heard you talk about the concept of your racket. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, the racket is the byproduct of your fear. Your racket is the byproduct of your limiting belief. So if I have a limiting belief that I can't trust people, my racket will be that I'm aloof or that I'm separate or that I'm distrusting and overtly. If my racket is I'm not smart enough, I mean, if my belief is I'm not smart enough or I'm not good enough, then the racket might be that I won't, you know, I won't really give it an effort in college or in learning new things, you know, because I'm not smart enough. And so what's the point? So a racket is, is the behavior, the outcome of a limiting belief. That's what a racket is. And the problem with the rackets is that they bring us false rewards. And so we, we, we perpetuate the racket. For example, procrastination or being late or being a control freak or being overly analytical or being somebody who puts people first or being outrageously spontaneous. You know, anything that's out of control can be seen as a racket. And so the reason why we have rackets is because they bring us what I call false rewards. And a false reward is the benefit of the racket. But they're false because there's ways to get to to those rewards without the racket. There's ways to being successful without being a control freak. There's ways to being loved without being a doormat, letting people walk all over you and putting yourself last. There's ways to be organized without being, you know, a robot and suffer from perfectionism and analysis paralysis. You know, there's ways to passion and ways to fun without, you know, being a flake. And so each racket has a false reward, which is what keeps us in the racket. But what we don't realize is that our rackets also come with a price tag. And the price tag could be exhaustion, could be sadness, could be 
isolation, anger, resentment, having a hard time expressing how we feel. The price could be, I don't delegate, I feel pressured. So there's a lot of prices. Every racket comes with a price. And so when, where breakthrough happens is when you are able to see that the price is way bigger than the reward. Got it. Got it. So the, the carrot is what's, what keeps us in there. But at, at the end of the day, if we don't break through that, we're going to be just like a fly inside a glass, just banging our head against the glass. We're yeah. Not- it's like me when you, the first question you asked me, um, was I ever, have I ever been stuck in a situation? Yes. I was in a relationship that I was miserable at. But the reward was, the false reward was I was having great sex. So I was willing willing to put up with cray cray for good sex. (laughs) I was willing to put up with drama for, you know, for someone who is going to look good next to me. And they're hot. And that's going to be my pull quote from this podcast, by the way. That's (laughs) awesome. I love that. I want to talk a little bit about meaning, or I've often heard you talk about interpretation. The meaning or the interpretation that we apply to things that are really just neutral. Let's use getting stressed out in traffic as a basic example. It's a neutral event, but many of us go nuts. Why is that? We go nuts because in our minds, we feel trapped and we feel that we have no control. And so we're letting a situation that's outside of us dictate how we feel. Just like when you, when you're, you know, go to the airport and the flight's delayed three hours and you know, you're going to be late to a meeting, you stress out just because you are aware of the racket doesn't mean that it always goes away. Sometimes it haunts you. But yeah, those are, those are situations that if you're not rigorous with your mind and your emotions, you can easily go into a frenzy and you could go into a negative place and then you're stressed out and then your heart rate goes up and then your blood pressure goes up and you're a, you know, a candidate for an aneurysm or a heart attack or an anxiety attack. And it's all because you're in a neutral situation that you made up in your head was a dangerous situation or an uncomfortable situation. It's like turbulence. I'm coming out with a book in the next year. The the 30 biggest lessons I've learned after being 30 years up in the air and flying over 3 million miles. And so we have no control over turbulence. So like if you're in an airplane and there's turbulence, you know, sometimes there's very intense turbulence. I don't know if you've ever been on flight. If you travel a lot, like I do, I'm, I'm on a plane every week. So you name the situation, I probably experienced it. And I've been in situations where the turbulence was so severe that the plane was literally swerving from side to side and up and down. And the wings were just like full flex, you know, just like those wings just were just moving up and down like a bird. And I'm looking at the flight attendants who are no longer interpreting a positive thing. They're freaking out and they're clutching their, their seatbelts and you're looking at the people next to you stressed out. So it's easily to let your brain go to, oh my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> You know, I uh, I heard you tell a story once of how RuPaul had apples thrown at her at the Boston Gay Parade that really illustrates the point of applying meaning to something. Can you tell us that story and what it taught you? I was in South Boston and there was a gay pride parade going through South. I was down there working 
uh, as part of my co-op in Northeastern University. And I stepped out and I'm watching the gay pride parade go through Southie, which at that point was very rednecked, you know, very, a very racist area. You know, if you weren't from there, you were rejected. So racist against people that are different. And RuPaul was a very famous drag queen and in a giant float with, you know, people dressed in chaps and leather and G-strings and feathers and boas and drag queens all over the place. And so I was watching a crowd literally scream all the slurs against homosexuality. And I put myself in her shoes if I was in that situation. How would I have handled it back then? And this is prior to the tools of transformation. I would have been horrified. And they were throwing things at RuPaul. And RuPaul was waving and smiling and thanking everybody and saying, I love you too. Oh my God, you're throwing rose petals at me. They were throwing bananas and garbage and you know they were throwing dirt and rocks and stuff and rupaul chose to interpret it as like they were applauding her and that they were throwing rose petals and so if you looked at rupaul you would think that rupaul was being you know celebrated and winning you know an oscar and she was at the acceptance speech later on i see her on a talk show where she's sharing about the same exact situation i couldn't believe it because I was there and I couldn't believe, you know, that she was referring to what happened. And she's like, yeah, I was going through South Boston and they were throwing, you know, rocks at me and they were throwing bananas and they were throwing fruit and they were throwing dirt and they were screaming all this racist racial slurs. And you know what I did? I acted like I was getting a standing ovation. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, Oh my God, that marked my life. I'm like, Oh my God. She took total responsibility, which, you know, what emotional intelligence requires and what mindfulness requires is take 100% responsibility. And was she responsible for how people were treating her? No. But was she responsible for her reaction? Yes. And she chose an interpretation that empowered her to live the moment and enjoy the moment. And so I decided from that point forward that I was going to go through life acting like the world's giving me a standing ovation, no matter what's happening. No matter what garbage is being thrown at you. Oh my God, yeah. And, and if you look at a Disney movie, Peter Pan, there's a great illustration of interpretation. Peter Pan was trying to fly and he couldn't fly and he kept crashing. And so Peter Pan's life coach, Tinkerbell, whispers in Peter's ear and says, Peter, if you want to fly, think happy thoughts. <laughs> So he started thinking happy thoughts and Peter Pan started flying. And so the same premise applies to all of us. You want to be happy, think happy thoughts. You want to move forward, think happy thoughts. And I want to be clear about something. Choosing a positive interpretation doesn't take away the responsibility of handling the breakdown. So if you're in a breakdown, just thinking positive is not going to resolve the breakdown. You've got to think positive, yes, Why? Because that allows you to keep your energy that you need so that you can apply towards this resolution of whatever is breaking down in your life. But the issue is not the breakdown. The issue is not the traffic. The issue is not people screaming at you or rejecting you. The issue is not the cancer. The issue is not the divorce. The issue is not the relationship. The issue is how you handle the issue. That's really the key factor, what you do with it. 
And so choosing a positive interpretation allows you to see the situation from a neutral place and from an objective place, not from an angry or a resistance place. And when you choose to see things from positivity and from love and from joy and from this is a blessing, even though it's disguised, then you got your energy to be proactive and to resolve it, transform it, and do your best to fix it. What a beautiful way of uh, illustrating that. All right, so I want to switch gears a little bit and move on to the play hard section of the show, which I define as really anything outside of work. You know, we spend so much time on work, 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 and not a lot, not a lot of time on play and creating real fulfillment in our lives. Playing hard looks different for everybody. Um, I'd like to talk about what it looks like for you. I see that you have done all kinds of things. You've uh, recently been in the holy city of Nazareth. You recently read a Ricky Martin show. You were recently at a WWE event. Why do you think it's important to do things that are completely unrelated to your business? That's so funny. (laughs) You do your research. (laughs) So uh, to me... It's about balance, which is what I coach people on. I I think that people are out of balance. They put way too much energy on work. And I coach presidents and CEOs and, and heads of companies and corporations. And the one thing they all have in common is their obsession with work and how 90% of their life is work. And then 10% that's left over is for themselves. You know, a lot of times I'll ask people that that work so hard for companies and are so loyal to their companies, even though they make six figures, some people make seven figures that I work with. And I'm like, yeah, you make three million a year, you make two point five, two hundred thousand, a hundred thousand, whatever that is. But you're dedicating all your time to a company that would replace you in twenty four hours if you died. And so to me, that's out of whack. And so I am a walking billboard for balance. So yeah, I work hard. I work my butt off. But I also will take two weeks off. I just came back from the Dominican Republic. I went down for a wedding. It was uh, a you know a beautiful wedding and had I danced hard. <laughs> I danced really hard. Uh, I don't drink much. Like I had a couple glasses of wine. I'm, I believe in balance. So I don't I don't need to get drunk to dance. I, I literally dance sober. And, you know, I not only dance hard, I played golf. I was in the golf carts and, you know, we went to brunches and we went, you know, to the beach and, you know, I'm all in and everything that I do. And so I believe that that allows me to offer more to the people that I work with. And so I live life and I travel. I went to Israel. It was one of my dreams to go to Israel. And it was one of the most spiritual experiences of my life. And I was, you know, I went all the way from Nazareth down to the Dead Sea. And, you know, I love visiting new places. There's not a lot of places left in the world that I haven't seen, but I'm always looking at the next place that I can go to. So I'm traveling a lot. I have dinner parties. I am involved in charity, which to me is joy. I'm part of LLS, which is the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and I'm on a mission to raise money for them. And I have till May 5th, and my personal commitment is $25,000. So I'm super close to that, and I'm excited about that. And it's, you know, the, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and this 
you know, this, this is a passion of mine. I'm passionate about St. Jude's. I'm passionate about uh, service projects. You'll see me at concerts. And usually I'm at concerts of people that I coach or I'm at events of people that I coach. So there's a relationship to work as well, but I turn it into play and fun. And also family. I've done a lot of work with my mom. My mom's now my best friend. We have healed. The, the work on myself really supported me in having compassion for her and walking in her shoes. And so I spend time when, I'm, when I have time off, I also fly to Puerto Rico. I'm going down there in a few days. I'm going to spend five days with my mom. And we go to the movies and we go out and we cook and we have fun and we go antiquing. And I, and I love to play poker. I'm also you know a amateur poker player. <laughs> So I love poker because I grew up in a house that played poker every week. My dad and my mom is a, a massively famous bridge player. You didn't know that about mm-hmm. me. My mom's a bridge player. She's won the, the nationals, the women's nationals, thousands of women that paired up. She won. It's in the New York Times. And she's been playing bridge for over 70 years. My mom's 89, vibrant, full of life. So I, have, I play hard and I have fun. You know, I could talk to you literally all day long, and I know we... I feel the same way. <laughs> My God, you're amazing. You, I really feel comfortable with you. You know, you, just, you, have, you, you have just such a beautiful voice, and you, you have such a gentle soul. Thanks, man. Is there um, any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Yeah, my final words is live your life with passion and urgency. Don't put off for tomorrow what you could do today. You know, there's a beginning and there's a middle and an end for all of us. And we don't know when the end's coming. And that's not the issue. The issue is most of us never really lived. And so my mission for everybody is to live a life fulfilled and break through your rackets, break through the things that stop you and, and look for support. I believe that having a tribe is one of the most important things we could do for ourselves. A tribe is a life coach, a mentor, a friend, a buddy, somebody who's in the same mindset that could support us in moving forward. We end where we began. This was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we're going to link up all of your social media presence and your courses and everything. The book and we're going to link up the new one that's not even out yet. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.